Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. How about you, but it seems at times to me that as though society has reached a tipping point into evil, uh, every time confronted with television or the news or culture itself, um, just when I think it can't seem to get any more crazy, it does. Um, whether it be just commercials today and the way that they continually slip into it, the degradation of society. Um, uh, this week, former President Barack Obama stated with shock that he could not believe people were still arguing about the LGBTQ agenda because he said, quote, that ship has sailed. Um, saw a commercial this week about when uh, your little boy wants to dress up as a princess for Halloween, you should just let him be his authentic self and do it. And I thought, what in the world? The, the political sphere has been uh, as divisive as ever. Uh, young people are seen as completely out of place if they maintain their purity. The drug problem continues like a flash flood across our county. Uh, violence, deceit, immorality, death, Destruction and hardship are all around us. The culture and political leadership continues to drive the culture farther away from God. And churches across the country seem to echo Oprah more than they do the word of God. And in the middle of this onslaught, I think often we feel like Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, he cries, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. If we've ever felt like that or even feel like that now. In today's passage, Paul presents for us the path of cultural destruction. And he demonstrates that this cultural destruction is actually the act of the wrath of God upon a culture. But this text is not given for hopelessness or despair. It's not so that we can wring our hands and worry about today. Rather, hope reigns and the kingdom will advance. So let's look at the text today and track how the wrath of God works in a culture and the hope that is provided. We begin in verse number 18 of Romans chapter 1, and we will attempt to make it through the end of the chapter. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, excuse me, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth of God about, uh, for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, though that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, we may remember that verse 16 ends with the importance of saving and sanctifying faith. And the reason that faith is so important is because God's righteousness is magnified by God's wrath. And so he says, for, he ends verse 17 saying that the just will live by faith. And then in verse 18, he says, for, or because of this, the wrath of God is revealed. Because God is righteous, he is a God of wrath. We do serve a God of wrath. This wrath refers to his deep-seated anger. However, the wrath of God is totally different from human anger. It, it doesn't mean that God loses his temper or flies into a rage or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. You see, the alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God's not neutral. And so God's wrath is his holy hatred of evil. His refusal to condone it or, or come to terms with it. And it's his just judgment on it. It's his holy aversion to all that is evil and his purpose to destroy it. You know, often we only view God through the lens of love. And God is love. We see that throughout scripture. John, first John covers that over and over that God is love. But the opposite of, uh, the opposite of wrath is not love. They're not contradictory to one another. In fact, we see God's wrath throughout scripture. Psalm chapter 2 verses 5 and verse 12 tell us, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In verse 12 he says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In Psalm 76 he says, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned, but you are to be Feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? In Psalm 78, he says he loosed on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. In Psalm 90, he says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. In Jeremiah 7, verse 20, the psalmist said, the, the prophet says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. You see, God is a God of wrath. 
One reason we struggle with God's wrath is because we view it in light of our anger. And our anger is rarely focused on righteousness. Our anger is usually kindled because we don't get what we want. And then we tend to lash out at anyone and everyone around us, whether they deserve it or not, because we're angry. But in order to understand and appreciate God's wrath, we must first look at the just reason for God's wrath. God has a just and righteous reason to extend wrath. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, these two parallel ideas, the ungodliness is, is impiety towards God, a lack of respect towards God and unrighteousness is injustice towards our fellow man. The unrighteous man lives as if there were no, no God, no will of God revealed and the ungodly man lives as if there is no God at all. And while the unrighteousness has to do with morality, our relationship to fellow man, ungodliness has to do with religion, our relationship to the sovereign God. In other words, God is wrathful because we have rejected both God and his creation. And notice the, the progress here. A lack of respect for God leads to a lack of respect for those around us. And we'll see this as we watch the way culture degrades. The more we move away from God, the more conflict between man occurs. Further, there's an essential relationship between God's righteousness and his wrath. See, if God responded to wickedness with no more than a passive tolerance or a, a mushy love towards it, that's okay. He would not be righteous. We would rightly call his righteousness into question. In fact, we see that clearly in the fact that the unrighteousness of man is set aside as an antithesis to the righteousness of God revealed in verse 17. The result of the ungodliness and unrighteousness is that culture suppresses the truth. We live in a day where truth is impossible to find. It's nowhere. In fact, we are living the day where the mantra is fake news. Everywhere. Who knows what to believe? Because truth is suppressed. It is pushed down. Now, truth can't be changed, but it can be stifled. What is this truth that man is suppressing? Well, he tells us. He says it's suppressing the truth about God's sovereignty that he has revealed to everyone. He says this truth in verse 19. For... 
what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. And notice the words he uses here. He says it is plain. It's it's made clear. It is clearly seen. It, it is visible to anyone who wants to look at it. It is clearly perceived. We, he gives insights. God has revealed himself to all mankind so that they are without excuse. See, God has revealed himself in nature in such a way as to hold all people responsible. God reveals himself through the created universe. Every man has that, has that revelation to look at the world and recognize this is not a mistake. This didn't just happen. It's impossible. Someone made this. And that someone is great. His eternal power and his Godhead. The fact that he's God and has power to punish ought to be revealed to every man by looking up simply at the starry skies. They're without excuse. See, man for centuries has been able to look at the stars and discover their fixed orbit and to, to track their travels on them. They can observe tiny seeds planted in the ground and growing up into amazing, gigantic trees exactly after the tree they came from. They can see the, the cycle of the seasons, the beauty of every season. They can see the rain and the snow. They can witness the marvel of human birth. They can see the glory of the sunrise and the sunset. In fact, in Psalm 19, the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When Paul was at Mars Hill there in Athens and proclaiming the gospel to those pagan Greeks who were very smart people, he says to them in Acts 14, 15 and set through 17, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food. And with gladness. You see, every person is without excuse because every, every person, whether a first century pagan or a 20, 20th century materialist, has been given a knowledge of God, can see the greatness of God in all the creation around him. And yet, they have spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry in all its various ways. One man said it this way. Now we see how the astronomical evidence of supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asked what caused produced that effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. 
For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of the rest, in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scales the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries, declaring God made it all. See, God has revealed himself to all mankind. Whether it is the one in the remotest parts of the jungles of Brazil to the high rises of Manhattan, God has revealed himself. The problem is the culture worships the creature instead of the creator. He says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They knew that common knowledge. They could see him in creation. And this is why the indictment is the wrath of God is on them. He says, not only did they not honor him, they weren't thankful. You know, God has blessed every man with common grace. It rains on everyone. You notice that in the last few weeks? It rains. God doesn't just make it rain on those he loves. He makes it rain on everyone. He gives fruit. He gives seed to the soil to everyone. He grants common grace to everyone. And yet, they are unthankful. The appropriate response of one whose daily experience is shaped by the recognition that he stands in debt to God is a life of thanksgiving to that God. But when we reject God, we become ungrateful. In fact, we begin to feel as if the world owes us. Noticed we have a culture and a generation that feels as though the world owes them. That they are entitled. They don't have to earn it. Just because they had birth. They graced us with their presence. Why? Because they don't understand God. And so they are unthankful. Further, it infects their mind. He says they become futile in their thinking and their foolish heart is darkened. They become worthless in the way that they think, in the way that they talk, in their self-dialogue. It's incredibly stupid. And their foolish, their unintelligent heart is darkened. But they don't think they're unintelligent because he says proclaiming themselves to be wise... They became fools. And we see this throughout society today. Where we see arguments that are absolutely inane. Completely contrary to common sense. And yet they are proclaimed as the ultimate of wisdom. No, your gender and your biology, mm, not the same. That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't work. But yet, they are wise. 
And proclaiming themselves to be wise, they become fools. You see, sin inevitably results in a darkening of some aspect of our thinking. In a moral universe, it's impossible to turn from the truth of God and its foundation and have anything left. There's no basis for truth because it leaves its mark when we reject it. One man said this, to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. The reality which gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding to everything else. Refusing to recognize God and have his truth guide their minds, sinful men are doomed to a futile quest for wisdom through various human speculations that lead only to falsehood and therefore to a still greater unbelief and wickedness. A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wisely observed that idolatry begins in the mind when we pervert or exchange the idea of God for something other than what he really is. Again, Paul in Acts 17 said this, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul was addressing a culture in Rome that was marked by idolatry. They had exchanged the truth of God and had begun to worship animals. They had begun to worship idols. They sacrificed in the temples on a daily basis. And we look at that today and we think we are so much more enlightened. We understand that's just wood. But culture, the cultural idolatry of the West is no better. You see, to exchange the worship of the living God for the modern obsession of wealth and fame and power is equally foolish and blameworthy. Our culture has turned its back on God. It began in 1859 with Charles Darwin and his order of species. The introduction of a way to explain where we came from without God. And to reject him and turn him to the sides. But it didn't stop there. It continued and entered mainstream society in 1925 through the Scopes Monkey Trial. In which it was introduced into schools as the science of the day. The settled fact. You are an accident. From that we began to remove God from society. Not just from schools but from the workplace and from every aspect to where we emphasize the separation of church and states, not understanding that that was to mean the state is not to have a place in the church, but the church is to work in the state. But rather, the two should never meet. And this has led to the advancement of secularism today. Sadly, the church has fallen prey to a disarming theology. Rather than understand what is happening in the culture, rather than proclaim the truth of sin and the gospel, they have moved instead to an attractional model that seeks to make you feel good about yourself so that you'll come in and maybe we can slip in the gospel. Some famous preachers have even welcomed their hearers to remove Jesus from their messages. It's okay if all you do is walk away feeling good. 
The most fundamental sin in our fallen corporate nature is the sin of idolatry, the sin of refusing to honor God as he is. And we want to strip him down of all his attributes and make him and reform him into a a God in our image that we can live with, that we are comfortable with. And so we emphasize only those attributes we like. The problem is when a culture turns its back on God, the outpouring of God's wrath is not far behind. And thus, Paul concludes with the just results of God's wrath. Verse 24, he says, therefore, because of all of this, because they refuse to acknowledge God, because the society has chosen to worship other things instead of the creator, because our culture has chosen to worship wealth and power and fame and sex and fun over God, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When we hear of God's wrath, we usually think of thunderbolts from the sky. Step away from them before God strikes them dead. That's usually what we think of. Earthly cataclysms, flaming majesty. Paul presents to us that instead his anger goes quietly and invisibly to work by handing sinners over to their sin. Notice the the progression here. Verses 21 through 24, he tells us that people exchanged the truth of God for idols and so God gave them over. In verses 25 and 26, people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and so God gave them over. Over in verses 26 to 31, people exchanged natural sexual practices for the unnatural. And the result is God gave them over. You see, the text shows us that the effect of divine wrath on a culture is to show that man becomes God. God allows man to become uh, the and feel the results of the degenerative processes of their sin. The wrath of God is often not the lightning and thunderbolts from heaven or the flood that covers the world. Rather, it's, you want that? Fine. You can have it. And watch what happens. Chrysostom interprets this handing over in a passive sense by withdrawing his influence over these disobedient idolaters. God permits them to continue in sin and indeed plunge more deeply into it. That they've chosen. One commentator, Godet, 
likens it this way. He says he positively withdraws his hand. He refuses to hold the boat as it was dragged down the currents of the river. But the meaning of the handover demands that we give God a little more active role as the initiator of the process. He doesn't just simply let go of the boat of culture and let it go down the current of sin. The picture is even that he gives the boat a little push down the river. You see, the worst thing that can happen to sinners is to be allowed to go on sinning without any divine restraints. See, God's wrath on a culture is not an active outpouring of divine displeasure, but the removal of restraint that allows sinners to reap the just fruits of their rebellion. And what he's telling us is this. The moral degradation we see around us is the consequence of God's wrath, not the reason. Often we look around and we say, God, when are you going to pour out your your wrath on our culture? It's more wicked by the day. It's more crazy by the day. And the reality is that is God's wrath. That's the result. See, sin inevitably creates its own penalty. Like a virus that invades the human soul, it takes its toll throughout the entire being. Isaiah describes it this way. Wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Isaiah 9.18. And we see this outpouring of God's wrath against the culture take place through a three-step degradation that frankly we can trace in our own culture. It begins... Because they refused to acknowledge God, because they refused to worship God as God and instead turned to worship themselves and creation, God gave them up to impurity. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The first step of the wrath of God is to give a society over to a sexual revolution. The word impurity is a word which means sexual aberration or uncleanness. Paul's point here is that the man's ability to respond and function as a rational being has been damaged. And without the illumination of Scripture, the truth of God on which to anchor his life, they begin to focus on themselves and to fulfill every fleshly lust they desire. We've seen this in our own culture. We trace that from Darwin, the removal of of creation from the schools to the turning away from God and culture. And the results was the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Where it was live free and just love. It culminated in the late, ni- in the late 60s with the no-fault divorce signed by Ronald Reagan in California. And it opened up the door to allow any sexual aberration Anybody wanted. The family was removed. And the boats began down the currents. They chose to worship creation. They chose to exchange the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God. That God created the family to function as a family. 
that it is not simply a societal construct, but is part of creation itself. It's why God created Eve second from Adam's body to demonstrate the oneness that is there and the community that is there and the complementarianism that is there. But society said, no, it's simply a biological function that makes you feel good. And if it makes you feel good, you should be able to do it. And as a result, God turned them over to impurity. But it doesn't stop there. The train keeps rolling. In verse 26, we discover that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with the women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Once the sexual revolution takes place, the next step must be the homosexual revolution. He says that God gave them up to these disgraceful, awful passions, burning, evil, ungoverned, pathological desires. In fact, that word passions is the word we get pathological from pathos. And as a result, they were consumed. They were literally set on fire by these passions, shameful Acts, disgraceful and obscene. In the Greco-Roman world, homosexuality was quite common and even highly regarded. It's evident from Plato's work, Symposium, from Plutarch's work, Lycurgus. It was a feature of social life, indulgent and not the least by gods. The Greek god Zeus is known for his attraction to the young boy Ganymede, by emperors, Nero, became known for his seduction of boys. And the homosexual reputations of the women of Lesbos, the island of Lesbos, was well established long before the writer Lucian made it the theme of his fifth dialogue of the courtesans. The reality is it was a problem in that day as it is for us today. Because the moment you remove the truth of God, there is no anchor. Scripture tells us marriage was part of creation and sex was to be in the place of marriage alone. One man, one woman for life because it creates oneness for this cause. Man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will become one, not one to be shared with many. Because it was designed for reproduction in the same sense. In that same text, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And biology demands that can only happen one way. And because Ephesians 5 tells us it is a picture of Christ and his church and the love of God for his people. That's why it's so important. See, we don't stand against this because we're somehow mean and we don't want people to enjoy themselves or have fun. We stand against it because we understand that it is the degradation and breakdown of society itself because it goes against God's truth in creation. But the result is they receive in themselves that due penalty for their error. There's an emphasis on the reciprocal nature of this. 
God said, you want that? Fine, you can have it. And they receive in themselves their error. And the implication is the STD and AIDS movements that have been uh, problems that have been going on in that culture and today. See, our society is no different. We've taken this next step through the homosexual revolution of the 90s and 2000s. It didn't stop there. It moved into the transgender movement of the last 10 years where you can be whatever you want to be. You feel that way? Go ahead. It led to the Obergefell decision in 2015, the AIDS and STD pandemics we have today. I say again, this is not, we don't need to sit here and say, God, when are you going to pour your wrath out on this sin? Because the result is, it is God's wrath. But it doesn't stop there. Sadly, there's a final step. In verse 28, we learn that God gave them up to a debased mind. It results in societal chaos and collapse. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they did not know, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They knew him, but after testing it, they decided, no. No, religion is stupid. So God gave them over to a debased Mind That word debased means it fails the test. It is useless. It is a worthless mind. And it results in all kinds of chaos. A list that frankly makes your blood curdle. But yet as you read it, it sounds like a newspaper today. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, filled with evil, filled with covetousness, filled with malice. They're filled with envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They love to gossip and slander others. They're arrogant and insolent. They're obnoxious. They are haughty and boastful. They begin to invent new evil. They're disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Evil reigns and righteousness is oppressed. In fact... He says that though they know the God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, evil is declared as good and good is declared as evil. This is where we live. And the end result is society crumbles under this righteous judgment of God. As we read the end of Romans 1, we cannot help but look at society around us and feel as though we are reading the, the morning paper. This is 
us. And we know it. The Christians all the time decrying the wickedness around us. Rightly crying like Habakkuk. God, how long are you going to look at this? But the problem is we tend to forget the answer. Paul gives us an answer in this text. There is an answer to society. The Roman society turned around. Within a few hundred years, Christianity became the, 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 the main religion of the empire. People served God, whether simply out of, out of duty or out of a heart for God. The society turned around. But how did it do it? Well, the answer in a way that Paul typically doesn't do is front-loaded. The answer is found in verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we see the answer is twofold in these verses. One, the answer is the gospel of Christ. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We must share the gospel. We must declare the gospel. We are really quick to share our opinions on the pandemic. We are really quick to share our opinions on our politicians. But we are really slow to share the good news of our God. But that's the answer. The gospel has to be the answer. As you're talking to your neighbor or your coworker or your friend and they're talking about all that's going on in the world around us and can you believe everything that is happening and can you believe the decisions our politicians have made and you can believe the things that are going on in society and can you believe that rather than going on and, and, and continuing to moan and groan with them, you can answer, there's an answer. You're right, but there's hope. It's the gospel of Christ. Jesus came to die for those sins and to redeem those souls and to change those lives and to give them hope and to give them a future and to give them satisfaction and joy. The gospel must be the answer. But there's a second aspect that is equally as important, and that is the righteous must live by faith. We talked about this two weeks ago where he quotes it. He says, verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is a quote taken directly from Habakkuk chapter two. We saw Habakkuk one where Habakkuk cried, God, the wickedness is all around me and you're not seeing it. And God answered Habakkuk. Yes, I am. I am pouring out my wrath on it and it's about to get worse. But. Chapter two, I take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the power and look to see what he'll say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. So he who may run, who reads it for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
it will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. He tells Habakkuk, here's the deal. I am working and it may seem slow. We feel like that. We see society around us and say, God, today would be a great day for you to come back. Why do you keep waiting? Why, why aren't you working? Why aren't you, you acting? And it seems slow. And he says, wait, it will come. And while you're waiting, you must live by faith. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Don't lose sight of what's really happening. That's really important for us today. Because what's really happening is not a political battle. What's really happening is not a societal battle. What's really happening is a spiritual battle where God is pouring out his wrath on a culture. And the only answer is the gospel. But too many Christians, we lose sight of this and we begin to act like unbelievers. And we respond to our political opponents or our societal opponents with anger and vindictiveness and, frankly, being a jerk. And it's not okay. It's not living by faith. The answer is the gospel. Years ago, when I was a safety manager for United Airlines working at the airport, people tend to kind of, through friends, accumulate together. And so there, where I was working, there was a large group of believers and a large group of homosexuals because friends invite friends to come work with them. Working with one of these ladies, one day I walked in and got to know her a little bit and we started talking to people around us and found out I'm a Christian and her first words were, well then, I guess you hate me. Those words crushed me. I said, why? Why do you think that? Because you're a Christian. Christians hate me. I don't know what Christians you've met, but I want to let you know I don't hate you. You see, they weren't walking by faith. The reality is we need to live by faith. What does this look like? Well, he tells us in Habakkuk 3. In verse 4, he says, O Lord, I've heard the reports of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We cry to God and say, God, in the middle of your wrath, remember mercy. Do your work. But, verses 16 through 19 of that same chapter, Habakkuk 3, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers and he makes me tread on my high places. In the midst of societal collapse around us. As this train keeps on rolling to ever more absurd lengths. We don't need to fear. It says, though famine happens, food shortages come, 
though the grocery store shelves become ever more empty and it be harder to buy a furnace, we don't need to fear because God is our strength. We serve a kingdom that's different and we need to act like it. That's what's going to save our society, the gospel of Christ. So let me leave you with three so what's today. Three things to walk away from in the midst of a pagan society. Number one, you must have a firm commitment to the authority of Scripture. You cannot exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you step away from the authority of Scripture, you lose all authority because the power of God resides in that alone. So hold to the authority of Scripture. Second, you must have a firm commitment to the real hope of the gospel. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you believe that it saves people? Do you believe that it means an eternity with Christ? Do you believe that it means that you become the sovereign's God's child? Do you believe the gospel or is it just some little ditty you said back when you were five in Awana and you've just done it because that's what you do? You have to have a firm commitment to the real hope of the gospel that it is the only thing that can provide hope. Finally, you must have a firm commitment to holiness. The just will live by faith. Don't give in to this world. Don't pattern after the world. Don't buy into the lie. Believe God and live for God. That's why Christ died. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, it is refreshing that even now, 2,000 years later, we see the reality of the way you work. We see it around us. And it does provide hope in spite of its challenges. That the gospel works and is true and is powerful. And that we can pattern and should pattern our life after it in accordance with your son. And that true change can happen as a result of that. So Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to live it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.